Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. And I'm Leah Kaufman. Before we begin today, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about their interests so that we can bring you the interviews and information that you'd like to hear. We hope you'll take a few minutes to complete the listener survey on our website at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute Fleece Vest, and that survey does conclude on December 29th, so I hope you'll visit it soon. And now on to today's podcast. Leah, please tell us about our guest. Well, kidney dialysis keeps many people with kidney failure alive and living at home. Treatment requires many hours per week attached to a machine at a dialysis center. But what if patients could undergo dialysis at home while they slept? Mr. Peter DeComo is the chairman and CEO of Renal Solutions, a company that makes small, safe, efficient dialysis machines for home use. Patients not only slumber through their treatments, but they get a higher dose of dialysis than is delivered by standard machines, a feature that Mr. DeComo hopes will reduce some of the complications that often accompany kidney failure. Let's hear Leah's interview with Mr. DeComo now. We're joined today by Peter DeComo, who's the chairman and CEO of Renal Solutions. It's a company here in Pittsburgh. And I think we'll start by asking Mr. DeComo, um, tell me about one of the products that your company is working on and what it does. Well, actually, we're working on our first product, and we're just at the beginning stages of taking that product to market after six years of, of product development. This is a very innovative kidney dialysis system that will be used to treat both Uh, acute and chronic uremic patients. Um, What we're really focused on in terms of the big uh, market opportunity is the home dialysis market. This device will enable patients to self-administer their dialysis at home, at night while they sleep, get a very long, slow, gentle dialysis, have their days free and not need to go into clinic uh, three to four days a week as they do today. At what stage is your product here in the U.S.? Uh, we're completing, uh, well, we have completed product development. We're actually in manufacturing, and we have our regulatory approvals. We're both FDA cleared to go to market, and we also are CE marked, which will enable us to go to Europe as well. I thought, uh, did I understand that some people in Europe are already using this product? Uh, actually, no, not this particular product. Okay. However, in Europe, uh, unlike the United States, Europe does deliver uh, a higher dialysis dose Uh, per body mass index, which yields better clinical results. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are certain countries in Europe which make it very attractive for us to uh, enter the European market uh, relatively early in our product introduction. For example, the United Kingdom is very proactive and forward-thinking as it relates to uh, patients doing dialysis at home. And the, uh, the UK government has indicated that they want a minimum of 15% of their chronic uh, renal disease population to be self-dialyzing at home. Whereas, uh, and and by contrast, in the United States, uh, less than one-half of 1% currently self-administer their hemodialysis at home. How how complex is it to hook oneself up to this machine? Well, uh, it's no more complex with uh, our system than any other system, but in general, a patient at home would have to self-cannulate. In other words, they would have to insert one or two needles uh, into their vascular access. Uh, This is a process, of course, where you take blood from the body, you remove toxins and fluids, and you return it back to the body. So 
in essence, it is a complex procedure and has certain risks associated with it. Anytime you develop a medical device, of course, you design it to mitigate uh, those major risks and to make it a very safe and effective uh, device for particularly, in this case, home use. Uh, but a patient would be taught uh, to insert their needles. Uh, people are concerned about the pain associated with that. But there are new and emerging techniques that are actually painless. For example, uh, there's a new technique emerging called buttonhole. And buttonhole is really nothing more than allowing the tract into the vascular axis to mature, much like a pierced ear. Mm -hmm. uh, after about six insertions down the same tract, uh, it will mature, and then the patient can convert to a blunt edge needle uh, and insert that rather than pe piercing the, uh, uh, the body and the vasculature each time. The blunt edge needle is actually painless in terms of insertion and patients actually become very proficient at it. Wow. Um, there are also other risks associated with doing dialysis at home. Remember, with our device, we're talking about a patient who would sleep at night for eight hours and receive a very slow and gentle dialysis dose. Um, but you always have to be concerned about the potential of disconnection from the machine and the patient potentially bleeding to death or exsanguinating. That is a very real risk on all other devices except ours. Uh -huh. and, and the reason for that is they use two needles into the body, and they use what's referred to as a peristaltic roller pump to move blood from the body and then return it to the body. If you disconnect on the venous return side, these systems uh, are not capable of sensing that disconnection, and the potential exists for that pump, if not noticed, to exsanguinate the patient. With our system, because of its unique design elements and the fact that we use a very unique blood movement system, uh, we can use one needle access into the body. And if that needle were to disconnect, uh, on the next cycle when attempting to pull blood from the body into the system, um, it would pull air into the system. Uh, we have four air detectors into the, in, the, in the system, one immediately at the uh, arterial inlet, it would sense that air, immediately shut off an alarm. Now, the patient may trickle blood, but eventually they would clot off and not have that pump attempting to pull blood from the body and then return it only to dump it on the floor. Wow, that's fascinating. So if you only have one access point, what is the cycle like? How are you taking blood? I mean, isn't there a risk that you'll keep dialysizing the same blood uh, all the time? Or that's a, very, that's a very astute question. Yes, that can happen. Uh, with conventional systems, but it doesn't happen with our system primarily because, again, the unique di uh, design elements prevent that. First and foremost, we're the only system that uses this pulsatile blood pump for the movement of blood rather than a peristaltic pump. This is a two-chamber uh, pump that actually looks like a very small artificial heart, and we have done some testing on that pump here at McGowan Institute, and it was developed in conjunction with Carnegie Mellon University for in the uh, section of uh, medical device innovation with Dr. James Antaki. Uh, this pump has two 20 ml chambers, and we're the only system that actually uses pneumatics uh, to power their blood movement system versus just uh, simple electromechanicals. And so with our system and its unique valving technology, uh, we can use that uh, pulsatile pump uh, with both ventricles firing simultaneously to use single needle access, 
or both ventricles uh, operating paradoxically to use uh, dual needle uh, access and a uh, continuous circuitous uh, circular movement. Uh, in single needle access, we actually use two lines, an arterial and a venous line, that come together at a Y connector and a single needle. Uh, so because of the valving technology, we have uh, virtually no dead space and, and no uh, uh, venous arterial mixture occurring uh, in the cycle. And uh, because of the valving, we just block off the venous side as we're pulling blood through the needle up the arterial side. And then uh, when it moves into the next cycle, the valving closes off the arterial side and returns blood mm -hmm. on the venous side. And so there is no uh, venous arterial admixture and there is no dead space and uh, it works very, very well. Wow. I, there's so much I want to know about this machine. It, it just sounds like such a breakthrough compared to conventional dialysis. Um, how big is it? Well, the, uh, the initial unit going into, the, uh, into clinical use uh, is not portable. It was designed to be transportable. And what that means is that within the home environment or in the clinical environment, you can basically take it anywhere you want, utilizing a standard power outlet, 110-volt, 15-amp fuse, you can do dialysis anywhere you want, anytime you want. One of the unique um, features of the system is that we use a sorbent technology, a chemistry technology, that enables us to do dialysis really anywhere with only a gallon and a half or six liters of tap water to do up to eight hours of dialysis. And the reason we can do that is we take that initial six liters, we purify it through our sorbent chemistry cartridge, and then pass it through the artificial kidney to pick up the toxins and the fluids, and then just battery circulate it through the uh, sorbent chemistry canister each and every cycle. So it basically gets repurified each and every time before it touches the artificial kidney. And it's the only system in the world that actually purifies that chemical solution called dialysate each and every time before it enters the artificial kidney. And that's important as well because there's always this concern about dialysis and the inflammatory response of the body uh, to bacteria and endotoxins in the dialysate. Uh, we remedy that by purifying it each and every time prior to its entry in the artificial kidney, and we purify it to a very, very high level. Uh, it's very near uh, what's termed as ultra-pure dialysate. The other inherent safety feature of our device with this sorbent chemistry capability is we only ever expose the patient's body to six liters of dialysate. And therefore, the patient's 40 liters of uh, body fluid always dominate the six. And if there were any electrolyte imbalance in that six liters of dialysate, which is unlikely, uh, it would go into equilibration with the patient's 40 liters of body fluid. In conventional dialysis systems, dialysate dominates the patient's body fluid at a minimum ratio of 3 to 1. So in other words, a minimum of 120 liters of dialysate versus the patient's 40 liters of body fluid. And that's for a standard three to four hour treatment. If you were to do it for eight hours, it could be five to six to seven times uh, the amount of the patient's body fluid. Now, any electrolyte imbalance in that dialysate volume would dominate the patient's 40 liters of body fluid, and you could potentially throw the patient into an electrolyte imbalance, mm -hmm. uh, which could be potentially lethal. Mm -hmm. uh, so our system is very unique with the convergence of this sorbent technology 
and this uh, very unique pulsatile blood pump that uh, we have developed. And the purpose of those two technologies really is to create a very safe, simple, and effective device that can be used by a layperson in the home environment uh, in order to self-administer their own dialysis and increase their dialysis dose. Can sessions be divided? Is, is that still useful? Can somebody do two hours of dialysis and watch the morning news and then you know, another four, six hours later on? or Well, typically not in the same day. However, there is an emerging uh, trend towards uh, uh, really two protocols. One uh, is called a more frequent short-term dialysis protocol. Typically, that is defined as two to two and a half hours of dialysis per day, uh, but you have to do that six days a week, mm -hmm. and the patient really needs to be compliant uh, with that dialysis protocol for a very simple reason. The body contains three compartments, blood, tissue, and cell. When you do a short dialysis dose, you're really only cleaning the blood compartment. Uh, immediately after that treatment, toxins and fluids uh, by osmosis migrate from tissue and cell into the bloodstream. And so you then have to clean that on a frequent basis the next day and the next day and the next day. Now our technology can do that uh, but it is very challenging from an economic standpoint because the primary payer, Medicare, only reimburses for three treatments per week. Mm. So that six-day-per-week protocol is challenging from an economic standpoint. Our technology versus our competitor's technology uh, can do this very long, slow dialysis dose. And in reality, what happens is, is if you do it three nights a week, eight hours while you sleep, you get three times the dialysis dose at a minimum that you then you get doing it six days a week, two to two and a half hours per day. And not only do you get a higher effective dialysis dose, but you live within the reimbursement methodology that exists today of, of three treatments per week. I see. And so you get the, the benefit of a higher dialysis dose and you effectively live within the three re treatment per week reimbursement methodology and for the payer, in this case Medicare, Medicare gets a higher dialysis dose per dollar of reimbursement. And that will be very important to our success in the marketplace as well. Right. Okay. Um, how often does the Zorbent cassette that you guys have developed have to be changed? And is, is that an, a, much, a large added cost to the maintenance of the machine? Um, cost is a very important issue uh, in the dialysis market. Remember, our customer... Uh, is going to be the dialysis center, uh, which have responsibility under the Medicare system for the comprehensive care of these patients. We will act as a subcontractor to that dialysis center. Remembering that they only get reimbursed for three treatments per week, uh, we need to be very cost effective uh, in terms of how we do this so that our charges to them, which result in our revenue, uh, produce margins that are attractive uh, to our investors. The cartridge that you ask about is a single-use cartridge for one treatment. It can be used for a short-duration treatment of uh, as low as two and a half hours uh, and as high as eight hours. But when you use it, uh, it's done and uh, you cannot reuse it. Um, since that cartridge under the uh, reimbursement scenario that I described is our cost. It's incumbent upon us uh, to get the cost of goods down as low as possible on that cartridge. Um, but 
when you're looking at cost, I think what you're really asking is, because we use this sorbent cartridge, are we as cost-effective as conventional systems that exist today? Um, if you look at the disposables, including our cartridge, and you try to compare them on an apples-to-apples -apples basis, we are more expensive. Uh, <clears throat> but we go into, that real, into the market with that knowledge realistically. It's not about having a low-cost disposable that makes us cost-effective. What it's really about is um, eliminating the professional intervention with dialysis that really drives up the cost. And so in the home environment, what you're trying to do again, uh, and I'm repeating myself, is to create a very simple, uh, safe, and cost-effective system that allows the patient to self-administer and eliminates the intervention necessary by the physician, uh, the nephrology nurse, and the nephrology technician. And when you eliminate all of that cost, we're much more cost-effective than conventional systems that exist today. And I'm also wondering about the power draw for a conventional machine in a central location. Well, in the home environment, you ha in order to use a conventional system for home dialysis, uh, there is a lot of home modifications that are required. And those home modifications are costly both for the patient and the provider. You have to install a commercial water treatment system wow. to include either a, a deionizer and a reverse osmosis system. That requires plumbing modifications, installation of the uh, water treatment system, and uh, modification of uh, power availability can amount to three to $5,000 for the initial modifications. But then in addition to that, and more importantly, uh, the patient on a monthly basis pays for that water utilization and power utilization. And as I said earlier, a, a conventional system for a standard three to four hour treatment can use two to four hundred gallons of water and for an eight hundred uh, for an eight hour treatment potentially six to eight hundred gallons of water. So typically you'll see a patient's water bill increase uh, seventy to eighty percent a month and their power bills increase about fifty percent a month. By contrast, and with our system, um, the power requirements for an every other day protocol where you're dialyzing up to eight hours, the patient will use, depending on the power company, two to four dollars per month of electricity, wow. and in essence, uh, no increase in water utilization because they're only using a gallon and a half of tap water per treatment. Well, I can see also a conventional dialysis center, if they're considering getting into the business of providing home these small you know, movable home dialysis systems of yours, that they're looking at this lower cost of doing business that is not only saved in labor for technicians, as you said, and I'm just sort of wrapping up what we've been getting at here, but also savings in water use, filtration, power, maintenance, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's compelling to a lot of people, isn't it? It's not just the patient in terms of having free time, and a better quality of life, but also sort of everywhere up the chain. There are, there are two challenges in this market, uh, of course. One is improving uh, clinical outcomes and quality of life outcomes for these patients. And the other is to improve the financial metrics of our customer, the dialysis centers. And uh, you have to realize that they live, uh, for the most part, in a fixed and capitated reimbursement world because Medicare covers 80 to 90 percent of this patient population. And for that portion of the population, these dialysis centers actually uh, provide therapy uh, in such a way where their costs exceed their revenue under Medicare. So what we um, 
provide to them as a benefit is that we take these patients home basically out of those dialysis centers and we increase their capacity. That's number one. And number two, we reduce their capital expenditures because when we take these patients home, they do not have to buy this dialysis technology. We retain title to it. We service it. We upgrade it. We repair it if it's necessary. We replace it if it's necessary at no capital expenditure cost to these dialysis centers. Um, currently, based on market growth projections, dialysis center providers would have to build two to three hundred centers annually to keep up with patient growth. By moving these patients to the home, uh, we allow them to retain revenue recognition, uh, reduce their capital expenditures, create capacities in their current centers, more seats available uh, for the more appropriate in-center dialysis patient, and slow uh, the growth of their building of bricks and mortar at the same time. We also reduce their labor and overhead primarily because we become their labor and overhead in the home. Uh, and in a time when professionals, uh, especially nephrologists and nephrology nurses, uh, are at a premium, there's a shortage of these people, uh, having that added manpower capability by working through us as an extension of what they do in the home uh, we reduce their labor and overhead costs as well. In the clinic environment, the normal staffing ratio of nurse to patient is about one to five. In the home environment, the staffing ratio of nurse to patient is about one to 25. Mm -hmm. uh, so over time, uh, they can reduce their manpower costs associated with these patients being at home. The other thing about patients being at home, when you increase dialysis dose, these patients become much better uh, clinically and uh, much more stable and require less professional intervention. And so there's a lower cost of subsequent diseases caused by uh, perhaps an inadequate dialysis dose. Absolutely. And if you look at the clinical uh, study literature, and there are over four to 500 quality clinical uh, study articles out there, when you increase dialysis dose to a point where the artificial dose uh, exceeds about 30% of normal kidney function, what you will see is about a 50% reduction in hospital readmissions annually, and you will see uh, also a 30 to 50% reduction in drug utilization. And these are significant expenditures under the Medicare system. The average patient under Medicare costs Medicare uh, for total cost of care about $67,000 annually. Uh, when you increase dialysis dose, at a minimum, you can reduce cost per patient annually uh, by $5,000 and maximally by $20,000. So it's well, a huge cost savings to Medicare. I'm still uh, really fascinated with the logistics of this. I'm wondering, who does the patient education? Is that going to be provided by people in your group, or do you see your group training um, a cadre of care providers to help patients learn how to use their home dialysis machines? The dialysis centers that are federally funded are mandated uh, to provide the professional uh, services related to that patient's care, including training. So if there, is, uh, if there is a patient who is identified as an appropriate candidate to go home, the uh, nurse trainer within that dialysis center is responsible for training that patient. Our responsibility comes in when that dialysis center decides that they're going to work with us in partnership and use our technology, 
what we do is train the trainers. Mm -hmm. So we have nurse uh, trainers and we have technician trainers that go into these dialysis centers and for a week train those individuals on the use of our technology. We also have very extensive training material that we've developed that's turnkey that we provide to these dialysis centers. And we train them on not only on how to use the technology, but how to use the training material so that they can train their professional staff as well as train their uh, patients who are identified as home candidates. I have another question about logistics. In studies, how what's the quality of sleep that patients get while they're undergoing dialysis? It's a very good question. Um, there's a high prevalence of sleep apnea in patients who undergo traditional protocols for um, dialysis. In other words, those patients that go to clinic three days a week and receive three, three and a half hours of therapy for an average of ten and a half hours a week. Um, there's a high prevalence of sleep apnea in that population. It's been demonstrated that when you put patients on nocturnal dialysis, where they sleep eight hours and receive a very long, slow, gentle dialysis, that uh, sleep apnea is reversed. Now, there's not been enough study done to understand the mechanism for reversal of that sleep apnea at this point in time, but they actually uh, see it reversed in a majority of patients when they convert from standard dialysis uh, to long, slow nocturnal dialysis. Um, we often get asked the question, well, the patient's hooked up to these tubes, they've got needles in their arm, uh, these needles are secured with tape, the tubes are secured to the bed so that they don't pull out. How do these patients sleep? Uh, in actuality, uh, if you talk to patients that have converted from traditional dialysis uh, to conventional dialysis, what you find is they sleep better. Uh, number one, they adjust individually to the technology attached to their body. Very similar to respiratory devices, when patients have sleep apnea, they're often uh, uh, provided a modality called continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, which is a mask over their nose, and it's strapped around their head. I'm a respiratory therapist uh, uh, in a prior life uh, by training, and I used to train patients to use that, and we used to do sleep studies on those patients. And when you find that you resolve the etiology of the sleep apnea, these patients sleep very well with technology connected to them. The same is true in dialysis. These patients sleep exceptionally well. They learn how to sleep on their back or side, protect that tubing and that vascular access, and uh, resolve their sleep apnea at the same time so they sleep much better. Wow. And, they, and, they're, and they feel much rested, much more energetic, and that's in part due also to the fact that they've got better fluid balance because of the better dialysis and they have better toxin clearance as a result of the better dialysis, which has also been reported to, to eliminate this cognitive fog that uh, patients undergo because of the toxin load that they have with inadequate dialysis. I should also point out, patients typically go on dialysis when their kidneys uh, fail to the point that they only have about 10% of normal kidney function. They then go on dialysis, and the traditional protocol of three days a week, three and a half hours, is about 13% of normal kidney function. So you can see that it's really marginal in terms of dialysis dose and its effectiveness on, uh, on patient clinical outcomes and, and uh, survivability. If, let's just say there was a, a movement to intervene in kidney disease 
sooner when a patient still had more kidney function remaining. And let's just say that, that your product was the product of choice for that intervention. Does that mean that dialysis would have to go on for an even longer period of time to deliver a dose that's equivalent to, say, 33% of normal kidney function because the patients failed to 30%? versus 13% of normal kidney function? Well, uh, I should qualify my answer by saying I'm not the physician, uh, and so I don't have that in-depth knowledge. But I will tell you that generally, uh, and it's, uh, it's evident in the literature, that um, early detection of kidney disease uh, is something that is strongly desired, and uh, pre-dialysis education uh, proactively is something that is strongly desired. Uh, by the thought leaders in the space. And part of that intervention is getting patients on dialysis earlier. There's another form of dialysis uh, commonly called peritoneal dialysis, or PD. Uh, this is a process where you have two catheters into the belly, and you uh, insert sterile fluid, and you use the peritoneum as a natural uh, artificial kidney to uh, eliminate toxins and fluid. It's not as effective as hemodialysis, but when patients have residual kidney function, it's a very effective form of dialysis and allows patients to self-administer this dialysis at home uh, and retain their quality of life. Um, it's been speculated that if you start dialysis at a higher level of residual kidney function, you will be able to preserve that residual kidney function for a longer period of time. And so there's a movement to do that. It's not been very successful to date. Uh, but if you read the literature, if you go to uh, national and international conferences, scientific conferences, you hear more and more talk about that. So I think it's something that will emerge more in the future. And just so our listeners know, when dialysis ceases to compensate for kidney function, what's the next step for a patient? Well, the ideal um, uh, intervention, of course, is a transplant. Uh, that's the gold standard. Uh, the, the challenge that we face with transplant, however, is that there's not enough uh, organs available, unfortunately, for these patients who suffer from chronic kidney disease. Uh, there's estimates of 50 to 60 to 70,000 patients on the transplant waiting list annually, and at most there might be 13 to 15,000 organs available um, annually to these patients. The other unfortunate aspect of this disease is because we provide an inadequate dialysis dose, by the time the patient qualifies for an organ, they're in such a debilitated state that they're not a good tra uh, transplant candidate. Because their lack of kidney function has stressed their other systems. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, well, I'm going to posit a brave new world where we're intervening um, in kidney failure sooner <coughs> with a product like yours that you know, maintains a great deal of a patient's quality of life, and maybe they avoid, I'm not saying they're going to regenerate kidney function, but maybe they avoid transplant altogether while still able to be active and get a good night's sleep and That's not right. have their days taken up by dialysis treatment. Well, there, uh, there, you know, the neat thing about long, slow, uh, extended duration dialysis while you sleep at night is that the quality of life is so much better as well as the clinical outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, it's still early on, and, and so time will tell, but when you talk to patients that convert to this better form of dialysis, there are patients that have taken themselves off of the transplant waiting list. Uh, and that's an individual decision, of course, 
but in talking to these patients, what you'll hear from them is, I feel normal again, mm -hmm. and why should I undergo a transplant and then have to live the rest of my life on anti-rejection drugs and the side effects associated with all of that when I feel so good right now? And it's major surgery, let's point out, and too. It is major it's, it's not a trivial matter to um, have a new yeah. organ put into you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there are also other exciting developments that uh, are, 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 of course, in the pipeline, uh, nanotechnology, uh, implantable, uh, you know, artificial kidneys. You know, those things uh, will or, or, or will be definitely in the future, but, you know, they're 10, potentially 20, 10 to 20 years away, uh, and so there's no immediate relief in terms of uh, the challenges that these patients face. So today they have two choices, kidney transplant or dialysis, and the great majority pre today predominantly survive with kidney dialysis. And so it's incumbent upon us as uh, medical device developers and scientists uh, to improve the way in which we administer dialysis so that they do have better clinical outcomes and quality, quality of life outcomes, and is, at the same time reduce the total cost of care mm -hmm. uh, for those who pay for this uh, Right. care for these patients. I want to ask you, um, finally, you've described two unique technologies with this product. One is the sorbent cartridge and the other is the pulsatile pump. Are there other applications for these two technologies that you might be working on in the future? Well, we are, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, for example, we've had uh, two phases of a Department of Defense grant, and what the Department of Defense wants is a truly portable dialysis system that uses as little water as possible. Uh, and as a result of those two grants, we have been doing research and development on a truly portable system that uh, uses uh, two liters of water versus six, so a half a gallon of water uh, to do up to eight hours of dialysis in a, syst in a system that is the size of a small microwave oven. The purpose of that device for the Department of Defense, of course, would be the capability of being able to do dialysis as close to the war front as possible. It's been shown that uh, for our soldiers that undergo significant trauma and multi-organ failure, the faster you can initiate dialysis, uh, the better uh, the chances of survivability. Um, and so uh, battlefront conditions, uh, mass units, uh, transportation by uh, ambulance or helicopter would be uses for this uh, device. Now, the Department of Defense, should they use it, uh, will never be a, a huge customer of renal solutions, but that device would have commercial applicability as well. Think about the patient that's bound to the home uh, who wants to travel and vacation, uh, go on a cruise, take a flight. Uh, they could just pick this up as a small suitcase take it with them, and if they can access a half a gallon of water from the tap anywhere, they would be able to do dialysis. Um, mobile dialysis services. Um, these are companies that exist today that go from one hospital to the next providing dialysis services for hospitals that don't have sufficient volume to buy their own technology and hire their own professional staff. Um, and uh, in emergency medicine. Um, uh, for lay, you know, for uh, civilians that undergo significant trauma, car accidents, and things like that, we see a use for this in ambulances and, and on medevac helicopters as well. So we have that technology on the bench today, and uh, we'll continue to develop that as we move into the market and raise more capital to fund our research and development efforts.
Okay. Is there anything I've missed that you want to throw in before we go? Uh, no. Uh, we, I don't think so. I think we've covered it pretty comprehensively. Uh, we're excited at this point in time at Renal Solutions because our regulatory approvals are behind us and we're just entering the market now in the fourth quarter of uh, 2006. And um, we're in manufacturing and we'll have uh, significant volumes of, room, of, of units to expand our commercialization in 2007. So we're looking forward to it. Good. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Leah. For more information about Mr. Decomo and Renal Solutions, see the links on our website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine, coming to you two weeks from now. If you have ideas for future podcasts or you'd like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and we cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. We hope you'll stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And join us again in a few weeks. 